You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 19th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up... There can be no peace in the world until the military power of Japan is destroyed. Japan breaks with its historic post-World War II pacifism, unveiling a $320 billion military build-up plan. Fighting breaks out for the second time in a week on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. Plus the latest from the world of theatre, and we'll flick through the day's newspapers too. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Vladimir Putin is meeting Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko today in a closely watched visit by Ukraine. China has officially reported its first death from COVID since restrictions have been relaxed. And Argentina has won the World Cup, beating France in a penalty shootout at the end of a dramatic final game of the tournament. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. But first, at least 16 Pakistani civilians were wounded last week as fighting broke out between Pakistani and Afghan border forces twice. On Friday, Pakistan summoned Afghanistan's envoy to condemn the shelling. While the border at Shaman is now operating routinely, security remains high. Lynn O'Donnell is a columnist for Foreign Policy magazine. Lynn, thank you for joining us. Um, firstly, what's exactly been going on at the borders? Hi, Vincent. Um, well, as you know, the um, Afghan Taliban took over control of Afghanistan in August last year and pretty soon afterwards the troubles over the borders began. Um, Afghanistan under the Republic as well as under the Taliban does not recognise the border as it's currently delineated between Afghanistan and Pakistan, although Pakistan does. Um, The border was set in um, the late um, uh, 1800s, 1893 by the British Empire and it runs through tribal areas and has split um, whole ethnic groups since then and um, the Pakistanis have tried to put a fence up and whenever they come along to repair it or extend it, uh, they're being shot at and it's becoming more and more serious. There are some commentators in in Pakistan that even say that the two countries are now at war and that's despite the fact that Pakistan supported the Taliban's return to power throughout the 20-year war with the American-supported Republic. I think it's not a problem that's going to go away anytime soon. And I mean, is it just down to this fence? Is that why this has flared up now? Well, I think there's a lot more going on now. The um, There are jihadist groups, the Taliban, um, the Pakistani Taliban is now uh, being protected inside Afghanistan by the Afghan Taliban. They're essentially the same group, um, but they're called different things. But their, their aim is for the overthrow of, um, right now, the Pakistani state, the establishment of um, Islamist um, authority. And um, the 
Afghan uh, Taliban are protecting the Pakistani Taliban as they now launch attacks on um, Pakistani military targets in the in these tribal areas, and and that's getting more and more serious too. Even overnight, we've seen um, a counterterrorism checkpoint um, seized by Islamist terrorists on the Pakistani side. So you know, things are really hotting up and getting very serious indeed. And how have civilians on both sides been coping with this? Oh, well, you know, they cope the same way civilians in um, wartime situations cope with, with um, uh, stoicism. They get on with things as best they can. In the tribal areas of um, of uh, northern Pakistan, uh, the which used to be called the federally administered um, uh, tribal areas and now is uh, part of the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province, Thousands and thousands of people over recent months have been demonstrating in the streets, calling for the government and the military to prevent the resurgence of of um, the Pakistani Taliban there. They were very powerful for about a decade until 2014, when the military finally pushed them um, back over to the Afghan side of the border. Um, and now they're coming back. People remember just what it was like. It was terrible. Thousands and thousands of people would disappeared. Bodies would turn up headless as warnings on the streets. Um, millions of people were displaced and the memory runs deep. But the government and the military seem, um, I guess, uh, complacent at, at best and complicit at worst in, in getting uh peace back to the region. Mm. You mentioned some commentators in Pakistan are saying that it's a war, uh, but what's been the respective government's reaction to this? Well, as you said, uh, the um, Pakistani side, the, Islam the Islamabad government called uh, the uh, Kabul envoy, they've allowed some uh, Taliban uh, representatives at the Afghan embassy in Islamabad, and they called them in and 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 had a talking to about them and got the usual promises that, you know, we're sorry this won't happen again. But it seems that the the Taliban who are in control in Kandahar and Kabul, different factions, um, don't have control over what's happening at the border, or they pretend not to. And um, there there is very much a rising tension and an awareness in Pakistan amongst. Um, lawmakers that they've kind of lost control of the group that they brought to power. Now they sponsored the the um, the uh, Taliban for twenty years because they wanted a strategic asset as a buffer um, against Indian influence in the region, and it's really turning um, back on them. It's uh, uh, it's uh, they've got buyer's remorse for sure, but as do most of the countries in the region that were glad to see the Americans and NATO go, and now they've got a renegade. Taliban, drug dealers, um, uh, uh, liars, uh, murderers, um, Islamists um, uh, in control on, uh, of a country, very strategically placed country on their border. And um, they've, they've got problems. Well, you mentioned there that they've ended up in the situation now with a, a sort of neighbour uh, going into their second week, uh, second winter of trying to govern a country uh, which has just become so broken uh, in so many ways. What is the latest from Afghanistan on life under the Taliban? 
Well, I think we can only say it's getting worse. Um, the flow of information out of Afghanistan is is also uh, slowing to a trickle. Um, censorship is tightening, as is monitoring of people who um, use social media to get news out about how awful it is. Uh, the um, international NGOs uh, repeatedly say that uh, millions and millions, probably half the population of 40-odd million, um, are facing uh, hunger and starvation as we go into the depths of the Himalayan winter. There isn't any work, so there's no money, no income. Uh, sanctions remain on uh, the banking and finance sector so people can't get their own money out of their own bank accounts. And the Taliban um, remain uh, totally impervious to international pressure to make things better. Uh, we hear from the UNODC that opium production has probably increased by a third. They can no longer monitor it, so they don't know. And that's despite an announcement a few months ago from the Taliban leadership that opium production would stop. All that did was make um, the prices go higher while uh, production apparently increases. And that's to say nothing of the production of methamphetamine, which they've been moving into for a few years because it's cheaper to produce and brings more income. Even the sale of passports, because people are desperate to leave the country, has earned the Taliban $50 million, and is estimated by, by at least one scholar here in London. Uh, so they've got lots of money for themselves, but the there is no distribution of this money or even money that is coming in through um, the United States and UN system for humanitarian uh, relief. Uh, the Taliban are taking most of that as well. So, you know, it's it's this uh, mafia-style um, grip on power. Uh, they say that they have a monopoly of violence, but there are resistance, armed resistance groups um, operating across the north of the country. Um, so it's, it's a very dire situation, and the number of people who want to leave the country just seems to be growing. And I expect that we will see not only the outflow of drugs and other contraband, but also of migrants, as especially young men uh, try to get out of Afghanistan, probably to Western Europe, to look for jobs so they can support the people back home. Hmm. Lynn, thank you very much. That was Lynn O'Donnell. This is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Well, it's 7.12 here in London, 14.12 in Tokyo. Japan has broken with over 75 years of post-war pacifism after unveiling a $320 billion five-year plan, which will make it the world's third biggest military spender after the US and China. Tomohiko Taniguchi is a former special advisor to the cabinet of Shinzo Abe. Tomohiko, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what's in this plan? Well, it's, um, it's a five-year plan. And uh, over the next five years, the idea is to increase Japanese defense budget uh, as much uh, as would make uh, 2% in comparison to the country's GDP to actually make uh, Japan on a par with NATO member nations. 
And what is this money actually going to be spent on? Are we talking planes, ships, missile systems? Right. Uh, among other things, it is going to, uh, for the first time, uh, allow Japan to equip itself with uh, uh, long-range strike capabilities. Um, your listeners would uh, be scratching their heads as to why Japan has had no such uh, long-range uh, uh, strike capabilities, but the reality was Japan has had nothing of that sort with an, ass- with an assumption that there would be a division of labor uh, to be played between the United States, which is going to uh, cover the attack and offensive capacities, and Japan, and which is going to be solely uh, uh, looking at uh, the defense uh, end of the equation. But no such division of labor is uh, uh, sustainable, uh, given the rise of uh, huge neighbor's uh, uh, military power, namely China's military power. And that's an imminent and uh, uh, growing uh, challenge uh, for Japan. That's the reason why. And uh, the other important element is to allow Japanese defense forces uh, to have as much ammunition as uh, would uh, make their effort uh, sustainable for uh, uh, much, much longer. Uh, rumor has it that Japan's defense forces have been able to sustain their uh, actions only for less than a week. And if uh, that's the case, uh, much, much more uh, bullets and cannons and ammunition must be uh, purchased and made available for Japanese defense forces. And do we know yet who Japan will be buying all this kit from? Mostly domestically, but when it comes to long-range missiles, uh, Japan is planning to purchase something called the Tomahawk from the United States. And more long-term, there is a, a plan uh, announced jointly between the UK, Italy, and Japan to develop the sixth-generation fighter aircraft system. And that's, got, that's been actually endorsed by uh, the United States. So it's, uh, it's in the pipeline. And what's the reaction been like in Japan? And will the military need to actually increase its numbers significantly for this as well? Not really. Japan's uh, defense forces have been very much uh, professionalized. Uh, uh, may I say, uh, notwithstanding, uh, yes, there is a chronic shortage of human power, the chronic shortage of manpower, and uh, yes, much, much more effort has to be done to recruit more, frankly speaking, working with Navy is as unpopular as elsewhere because you can't use your mobile phone uh, from the sea, but uh, that being a challenge, uh, much, much more effort has to be put into recruiting more. And how have regional neighbours, particularly, of course, China, North Korea and South Korea, reacted to this plan so far? Japan is an immediate neighbour to Russia, North Korea, China, none of which is uh, open democracy, and every one of which is increasing its uh, military spending, investing into nuclear power. Uh, They are not obviously happy. They would be happy if Japan was like sheepish, uh, a silent uh, country. But Japan is teaming up more with uh, the United States, Australia, India, and like-minded other countries, uh, including the UK. So China is obviously hearing signals more vocal from Japan and elsewhere.
And just lastly, you mentioned Russia there. Japan has disputed territorial claims uh, with Russia, of course, the invasion of Ukraine earlier in this year. Is this move now uh, primarily because of what Russia's done in Ukraine, leading to fears China might take similar action, particularly with Taiwan, uh, and might have Japan in its sights as well? I think uh, Japan is with a long game, very much a long game with these nations, Russia, China, uh, neither one of which is going to change uh, very much easily and drastically, and neither one, neither one of which is interested in uh, reducing their, 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 their military budget. So uh, Japan must be prepared for a very much long game. Uh, as regards uh, territorial claims, uh, 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 the Russia-Japan uh, rapprochement talk uh, aiming at achieving for the first time after the Second World War a peace treaty has been put into halt, of course, uh, uh, in response to the invasion that Russia made uh, into Ukraine. Tomohiko Taniguchi there. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Vladimir Putin is meeting Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko today in a visit closely watched by Ukraine. President Volodymyr Zelensky has said the country was ready for all possible defence scenarios against Moscow and its ally. China has officially reported its first death from Covid since restrictions have been relaxed. The chief epidemiologist has warned the country is in the first of an expected three waves of cases. And Argentina has won the World Cup. The team beat France 4-2 in a penalty shootout in a dramatic final game of the tournament. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Well, it's time to have a flick through some of today's newspapers. And I'm delighted to say Nina Dos Santos, CNN's Europe editor, has joined me now. Um, Nina, you're wearing a great festive jumper today. But uh, what's in the papers? Is it good stories? Uh, well, a tricky one, which we'll come to in a second, which is strikes, strikes and more strikes mm-hmm. for the UK. But as you said, thankfully, I'm putting on my uh, Christmas jumper to be with you at the start <laughs> of this festive week. Um, before we get to the issue of strikes that are continuing to paralyse the UK, um, one of the first things I saw in the newspapers that I thought was quite interesting was across the channel over a field in Brussels, which is this allegations of a corruption scandal uh, involving members of the European Parliament and allegedly Qatar that continues to send shockwaves even over here in the UK, which of course uh, brexited a number of years ago. Um, The Times has a piece alleging that Qatar is signalling it could well start to curb or be in a position to curb gas shipments to the EU uh, if this corruption scandal continues to grow. Now, uh, for our listeners, if they're not aware of this, this is something that uh, came to light about a week or so ago when a member of the European Parliament uh, of the Greek PASOK party, indeed a vice president of part of the European Parliament, uh, who is currently in custody in Belgium, uh, was uh, alleged to have been involved in a corruption scandal involving uh, vote buying and influence buying, allegedly by Qatar. Uh, About €900,000 were found in uh, properties, hotel rooms, suitcases well. and so on, in cash, in properties that were linked to her and her partner and another European MEP. Even uh, her father, allegedly at one point, was said to be in possession of cash. Now, a lot of these individuals uh, deny wrongdoing, but this is significant because it's going to be coming to a head later on this week because there'll be the first court hearing. And you and I who've covered Brussels um 
over the years, Vinny, will know that there's been a lot of concerns about the influence of lobbying and cash, potential cash payments targeting the European Parliament over the last few years. This is probably the biggest corruption scandal that we've seen so far, but it seems that it may not be limited just to this particular case. There's Mm. been a lot of question marks over whether or not the European Parliament should be more transparent about the cash or, you know, that's making its way towards some of its politicians uh, in years gone by, or at least accountability of how much lobbying uh, is being done there. And now, obviously, the Qatar uh, scandal has thrown this into light. Now, what Qatar is alleging here is saying, well, you know, you've been relying upon us. We've been building up our diplomatic relations over the last few weeks and months because, of course, the EU is desperately trying to find other sources of gas. And Qatar gives them about 21%. They need to make up another 18% after the shortfall from Russia because of the war in Ukraine. And Qatar was supposed to be crucial to that. But this throws that whole relationship into jeopardy. Yeah, I think Qatar two weeks ago had done a deal with Germany about supplying them as well. I mean, a a country that really this year, with the World Cup finishing, uh, has been really under the spotlights in a way it's probably never felt before. And making this kind of quite strong threat to Belgium, how do you think it will go down for the country? Well, I I don't think it'll go down terribly well because the concern here, as I said, is that there's been a lot of voices talking, not specifically about Qatar's relationship with the EU, but in general about how the system by which uh, laws that are passed across the EU via the European Parliament, which gives them a legitimacy because they're voted on by members of the European Parliament, how that system needs a lot more transparency. Now, we've seen uh, Roberta Mazzola, the uh, Maltese president of the uh, European Parliament, come out and very clearly say, look, this we believe is an individual sort of group of people, a nexus, if you like, that's involved in this and the investigation needs to be allowed to proceed. But there's many hundreds of members of the European Parliament who will say, well, look, this is an opportunity for the European Parliament to take a really clear look at how it does business, at who is being allowed to lobby politicians and, you know, to put forward some more concrete rules to prevent this type of thing from happening again. Mm. And yet, you know, you look at what uh, Saudi Arabia has done with OPEC as well, Russia cutting supply, it does show that last week's news from the US about the breakthrough in fusion, uh, you know, still 20, 30 years away, but why that is so needed to sort of break away from this kind of persuasion, isn't it? Well, we're going to turn now to your next story, and it's one from the Pope. Yes, that's right. So, uh, Pope... Uh, Pope Francis, who just turned 86 on Saturday, so happy birthday to the pontiff (laughs) himself over this weekend. He apparently has given an interview to the Catholic newspaper ABC, during which he's now revealed that he's actually already written his resignation letter in the event of him becoming incapacitated or uh, due to ill health. He says that he wrote it back in March of 2013, soon after being elected pontiff, uh, and that it's in the hands of one of his trusted advisers, and it's indeed been passed over to his successor as well, uh, just in case there are any uh, health problems. Now, uh, the Pope says he's still in good health. He recently had, I believe, uh, surgery on his bowel and also on his knee, but he says, I'm fine to continue. What this says to me, and I have some perspective on this, Vinny, because I used to be a correspondent in Italy uh, many years ago during the time when John Paul II died. Right. And there was the election of Pope Benedict as well thereafter. Mm-hmm. You remember, Who is still alive, of course, still alive, at 95. Age 95. And he was the first one to abdicate due to ill health reasons in 600 years. Indeed, in this interview, Pope Francis actually 
praises his predecessor, Benedict, for making that decision um, and says, I would have no hesitation in doing the same thing. What this says to me is that the events that surrounded the death of John Paul II, when you may remember he fell ill, he was incapacitated, Mm. we understand unconscious for some time, before uh, sadly passing away, that left a real impact on the apparatus of the Catholic Church because essentially it threw into light the the hypothetical possibility that the Catholic Church could be frozen in time, if you like, mm. without the ability to uh, well, appoint cardinals. He could have been for years. Uh, yeah, Indeed, with, yeah. I remember doing a piece on this subject and having to interview many uh, members of the clergy in Rome about this specific subject, which didn't come to pass in the end, but it this interview is indication that it's still in the mind of people like Pope Francis. Worries about a power struggle. I mean, there's no deputy or vice pope, is there? So it becomes a bit of a battle. Well, that's, yeah, fascinating. Um, and uh, your next story, and it's something I am well aware of, having tried to travel around the UK last week to cover stories, the strikes in Britain. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're bracing ourselves for a week of industrial action, just as many people are looking to sort of take some annual leave, some time off. Um, They're going to spend a lot of that time trying to get from A to B across the United Kingdom. Now, the UK has a specific problem with strikes because obviously it is a country that's contending with slightly higher inflation than some of its European uh, counterparts. It's also contended with very anemic wage growth, let's face it. The Mm -hmm. backdrop to all of this is very anemic wage growth over the last decade or so. So a lot of people are sort of feeling themselves pushed over the edge. And that's why you're hearing the nurses, for instance, call for a 19% 19% pay rise because yeah. you've got inflation running at about 11%. Then, you know, you then have got them not having had a pay rise essentially since 2010. Absolutely. And I think part of the issue, of course, is um, having lived and worked in France uh, in the past and been educated indeed in the French system and lived in other European countries, people are a lot more vocal perhaps um, in striking. But here in the UK, uh, obviously, they're not. And so, as you said, Uh, people might balk at the fact that nurses, for instance, are asking for a 19% pay rise. Uh, But it's not just nurses. It's ambulance workers who are going to go on strike this week. It's also border force, passport checkers. So if you're thinking about going through Gatwick, Heathrow, Mm. Eurostar, be warned. They're expecting... It is an advent calendar of strikes, essentially, isn't it? Yeah, expecting queues of up to two hours. And, of course, the country's going to have to put the army and navy uh, on alert to try and help out Mm. with essential services. But what can the government do to try and circumvent this? Well, with some special groups, like, for instance, nurses, where there's a lot of public sympathy for uh, helping them out with the pay issues that they're uh, suffering at the moment that have been long overdue, um, there is a possibility of giving, say, a one-off payment so it doesn't go on the books uh, for perpetuity. Uh, But it's quite different for very different cases, like, for instance, the rail, maritime and transport unions that are quite vocal Mm. and have consistently pushed for higher pay. Uh, And just very briefly before I let you go, uh, Elon Musk, he was at the World Cup final last night and now he's done a Twitter poll asking if he should resign as the CEO of Twitter already after about a month. And just at the time of speaking, there's three hours left on it. There's been over almost 14 million votes and 56.8% are saying yes, he should go. This is quite a dangerous corporate strategy. Indeed. Um, Chaos reigns. In fact, I was looking at that poll uh, half an hour ago and it was 13.5 million. So a lot of people appear to have woken up in our time zone and uh, decided to vote on this. Look, Mm. uh, what can one say? Uh, Brevity reigns and Elon Musk, of course, one thing we can count on him for is probably a a bit of chaos. He likes to mix things up. Yeah, he does. Um, Nina Dos Santos, thank you very much. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. (laughs) 
UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Well, it's time to find out what's making headlines on the stage with Matt Wolf, theatre cricket critic at the International New York Times. Matt, thanks for joining us once again. Thank yep. you. For many families, you know, it's the first Christmas in a few years since you've yes. been able to go to shows. So yes. what's going on in the West End and Broadway? A lot. <laughs> uh, I think last year, lots of things um, shut up shop at the last minute. Actors were ill. Audiences were ill. Omicron. And it's, yep. Yeah. And it's as if everything now is coming back with a vengeance. Uh, my diary this year had 17 openings in the first 20 days of, of December. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and Darren Brown has a new show at the Apollo. He does. And this is very interesting because it's absolutely in every way a post-lockdown show. It's got all the magic tricks and the kind of, you know, gasp, how did he do it, theatrical that we expect, but there's also a lot in it. You can't give too much away with Darren Brown, but there's a lot in it about loss, about bereavement, about grief, but also about connection. So it feels very much prompted by the events of lockdown, and it gives the whole thing an emotional heft that you don't expect with Darren Brown, and that's very surprising and very satisfying. Interesting. With so much sort of dramatic work now, so if you if it's a contemporary work, if you don't include the pandemic, well, then it's fiction. It's it's this line that yeah. films have to cross. Yeah, but in this particular case, and again, I can't say too much, but there are events that happened in his life that you feel have transformed how he how it affects his work. Right. Um, and of course, the Bard on the West End. What's this production? Uh, well, there's As You Like It at the um, new At Soho space, kind of an odd name for a theater. But it's a magical production directed by Josie Rourke, who used to run the Donmar. Uh, I suppose the drawing card of it is Rose Ailing Ellis, who, of course, was on Strictly uh, as a And for a, anyone not in Britain kind of who doesn't headliner. know, she's a deaf actress. She was previously in EastEnders, the exactly. main soap here. Yeah. And here she is playing Celia, one of the two central female characters in Shakespeare's great pastoral comedy. And uh, the lovely thing is that because of her her deafness, she has a sort of intimacy with her co-star, Leah Harvey, who's a hearing actress who plays Rosalind. But it's as if they have a kind of intimate language of their own. Uh, the text of the play is projected around the auditorium, so she can follow what's going on, but so can the audience. And in an interesting way, it makes it much clearer than most productions, because you're on top of quite literally every single word. Uh, The production is beautiful, funny, enchanting, and as is always the case with that particular play, uh, very kind of moving and wistful, so very much worth seeing. Mm. Lots of people will be watching uh, Sir Ian McKellen as Gandalf. They like to (laughs) rewatch those Lord of the Rings films at Christmas, but he's on stage in London. you got to hand it to Ian McKellen. He's having the most protracted and glorious farewell in the history of British showbiz. (laughs) 
because <laughs> he's been retiring for several years now. And every time you think he said goodbye, he comes up with another Hamlet or King Lear or whatever. In this, he's playing Mother Goose, whose first name is actually Caroline, Caroline Goose, who's a, a sort of gruff northern matriarch in curlers who presides over a weird sort of animal shelter that used to be Debenham's department store. And uh, he, she, uh, played by Sir Ian, is married in the show to John Bishop, uh, who's Vic Goose. And uh, it's nutty, crazy, and absolutely irresistible. Uh, You feel in this uh, Sir Ian's absolute love of performance. Somebody's going to be 84 in May and it's not about to stop anytime soon. Mm, I interviewed him a couple of years ago and he was just still completely razor sharp and charming. Um, and finally, uh, Dolly Parton. She has a performance on. Who doesn't love a bit of Dolly? The funny thing about this one is I think a lot of people think that Dolly Parton might be in it. She isn't. Uh, but her music is country and western twang wedded to Dickens's A Christmas Carol. You probably never thought Dolly and Dickens would be in the same sentence. Here they are. I feel like Dickens is being reworked every single which way <laughs> this Christmas. Yes. Well, uh, Matt Wolf, thank you very much it's for joining us. Um, that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Sophie Monaghan Coombs and Carlosa Rabello, and our studio manager, Steph Chungu. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs>